think as most of you know uh, by now, my wife, Lorena and I are formerly empty nesters. That is, our four sons are grown and gone. They're all between 24 and 31 years of age. That's a little hard to believe. Uh, two of them are married. Our oldest uh, son, Jordan, and his wife live in St. Petersburg, Florida for the winter. Uh, our second-born, Jesse, lives in Charleston, South Carolina, where he teaches special ed in high school. Our third son, Micah, and his wife and their nearly 18-month-old daughter uh, live in Lockport, Illinois, just about 40 minutes away. We'll see them today. And our youngest son, Canaan, uh, is playing professional basketball on the island of Malta in the Mediterranean Sea. So we have gradually and somewhat reluctantly adjusted to life as empty nesters. And I say reluctantly because uh, we loved our, our, our season of life as a family. We loved the energy and the fun and the chaos of everyday life. Uh, we would sometimes in the summertime have 250 baseball games to go to in one summer. So we, uh, we enjoyed that time of life. There are, however, certain um, benefits to being empty nesters. <clears throat> One of the main things is our house has a tendency to stay clean a lot longer. These days, back when the boys were young, my wife was mostly a stay-at-home mom for some of those years before leading Chapel Street Women's Ministries for some 20 years. And she did a great job of caring for our boys and caring for our home. And in those days, she rarely got a day off from being mom. But every now and then, she would have a chance to be away for a day, and sometimes even like for a whole weekend. And when that happened, I was in charge. And I noticed over the years that within a few hours of her departure, something very interesting would happen to our house. Really, a phenomenon, really. Uh, things would degenerate. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Toys would spill out of the toy box. Cereal bowls would pile up in the sink. Portillo's boxes would be scattered around the family room. Shoes would somehow multiply. Uh, dirty clothes would cover the floors of the bedrooms. Within hours of her departure, our home would descend into a state of sort of primordial chaos, kind of like Genesis, right? And the coffee house was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Now, I don't blame it on domestic laziness at all. And guys, pay attention. You may need this. Uh, I blame it on the second law of thermodynamics. It's the law of entropy. You know, everything in the universe goes from order to disorder unless energy is invested into the system. So what can you do? It's the law of nature, right? <laughs> but during those years, I discovered a formula. I discovered it would take me about one hour for every day she was gone to clean up because things had to look good when she got back. So let's say if she was away for maybe a weekend, short weekend, two days, uh, it would take about two hours. So if she's coming back at 6 p.m., I'd start cleaning up at about 4 p.m. on that day, right? That's how it worked, and it did work. The problem was when I didn't know exactly when she was going to get back. When I didn't know exactly when she, when she was going to get back, I had to keep the house in a state of perpetual readiness, which is a whole different thing. And that leads us into our, our, our discussion today from the book of Mark. We're still on our series called Following the King. And just to orient you, orient you to where we are today, uh, we are in the last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. Uh, he's already entered into Jerusalem riding on a donkey to fulfill the prophecy that the Messiah, the king, would come riding on a donkey. He's already thrown the money changers out of the temple, which made a whole lot of people really, really angry. Uh, a group of Pharisees and Herodians try to trap him with a question about paying taxes to Caesar so they can accuse him and even destroy him. Last week we saw that a scribe came to him and asked, uh, what's the greatest commandment? And he gives him an answer. And at this point, Jesus is still in the temple area. 
And Mark begins chapter 13, where we're going to be today, by telling us, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what a wonderful building. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, I think it's nearly impossible for us to to understand the impact that Jesus' words here would have on those disciples at that time. The temple in Jerusalem was the very symbol of God's presence and blessing on the nation of Israel. This is what it would have looked like back in that day. Uh, The temple took 46 years to build. It had walls of white limestone inlaid with gold, towered some 150 feet above the Kidron Valley. And it was absolutely uh, unimaginable that such, such a magnificent structure could ever be torn down. It was built with some stones that were as large as city buses. An incredible building. If you go there today, you can still see some of those stones left, but they're not a temple anymore. It would be like someone telling us in 1974 that the newly constructed twin towers of the World Trade Center would one day be a pile of rubble. It would have been difficult to, for us to even fathom. But history tells us it did happen. And so did the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. In 70 AD, just 40 years after Jesus spoke these words, the Roman army under, a Roman army under Emperor Titus sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple of Jerusalem. Now with that statement just still hanging in the air, Mark tells us Jesus leaves the temple area and it leads his disciples across the Kidron Valley, which is just a short walk, a couple hundred yards, to the Mount of Olives, which is sort of an elevated area uh, from which they had a panoramic view of the temple and of the city. It would have looked something like this in that day. Now the temple's no longer there, just the Temple Mount, but it would have looked like this. Overlooking the great temple, this is where uh, we pick it up in chapter 13, verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Naturally, they want to know when. He just said the temple is going to be torn down. They want to know when. When will these things happen? Now, Jesus doesn't give them a date, but he does give them some things to look for. Verse 5, he says, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. So he's saying, watch out for false teachers, false prophets. And then he warns of coming disasters. Verse 7, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, and the end is, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. But these are but the beginning of the birth pains. History tells us in 62 AD, a great earthquake struck the city of Pompeii, right in the heart of the Roman Empire. Notice Jesus says, when you hear of wars and of earthquakes, this is not the end, but the beginning of birth pains. It's the same phrase Paul uses in Romans to describe the brokenness of sin in the world, Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Jesus is saying that through pain, through the brokenness of the world, God is going to bring something new, some new life. And we're going to get to that in just a few minutes. Then Jesus warns of coming persecution. Verse 9, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
Interestingly, if you read the book of Acts, all these things happen in the next 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. All these things happen to the early believers. You can read through it right in the book of Acts. Of the 11 remaining disciples, the 12 minus Judas, all but one, the Apostle John, would be martyred in the next 20 or 25 years for preaching the gospel of Jesus. Finally, in verse 14, Jesus says, But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now this phrase, abomination of desolation, is difficult to translate. It basically means when you see the revolting, disgusting evil before God, and we see this phrase first way back in the book of Daniel, uh, in a prophecy about uh, a pagan king named Antiochus Epiphanes IV of Syria, who would conquer Jerusalem in 175 B.C., and he desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar of God. That's what Daniel's referring to. We also know that when Emperor Titus destroyed Rome, uh, destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., he slaughtered thousands and thousands of Jews and piled the bodies up in the temple area, thus desecrating a holy place. Now, all that I've just covered is by way of introduction and setting the stage for this next teaching Jesus gives us. That's what we're going to look at today. Mark 13, beginning in verse 24. Jesus says, But in those days, after that tribulation, what tribulation? That's what he just talked about. Destruction of the temple, persecution, false prophets. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give us light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now here Jesus is using apocalyptic language. We're going to come back and talk about that in a moment. Verse 26, and then they will see the Son of Man. Now most of you know the Son of Man is a messianic title. It was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now, this whole chapter, Mark chapter 13, is called by scholars the Olivet Discourse. And it's one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament to interpret. Now, scholars and preachers have debated and discussed and argued about this teaching for centuries. So we're not going to probably get it completely covered today, just to warn you. It's difficult for several reasons. First, because of the subject matter. Jesus is speaking here prophetically. He's talking about events that have not taken place yet. He's talking about the future, cataclysmic events that are difficult for us to even imagine. Secondly, it's difficult because we're time-bound creatures. 
And anytime there's talk of the future, especially talk of, of end times, we are curious. And we're fascinated. And we're tempted to speculate on things that Jesus does not want us to speculate about. And thirdly, it's difficult because Jesus using a, is using a different kind of language here called apocalyptic language, which is heavy in imagery and kind of strange to us. There are also, sort of across the centuries, three main interpretive views of what we're going to look at today. The first view is that Jesus is talking exclusively and specifically about the historical events that happened around 70 A.D., that he's speaking just of the coming destruction of the temple, preparing the disciples for the, the, the end of life as they know it. The second view is that Jesus is speaking exclusively and specifically about the end times, about distant future events, about his second coming and all that's coming at that time. But there's a third way to look at this, is that Jesus is talking about both a near-term event and a distant event. And that's the view that I'm going to kind of take this morning because I think Jesus is using a short-term historical event to clarify for us and point us toward an event that's coming in the, in the distant future. So let's dig in. The first thing we see Jesus teaching is, I think, that the end is near. The end is near. Well, um, I don't know if you watch the Olympics at all, but they're over. They ended, I think, last Saturday or Sunday. And I had fun for a while watching, you know, sports I know nothing about, and we'd watch them at night. And then I, I just kind of lost interest after a while and didn't even watch the end of it. But as I studied uh, this passage this week, I got to thinking about sports I know a little bit more about that I'm more uh, familiar with, like uh, baseball and football. And it struck me that one of the differences between those two sports, and there are many, is that football is a game that's governed by a clock. The game begins, the clock starts ticking, quarter by quarter, and eventually, even if they call timeouts, even if there's replay, eventually the game ends because the clock hits zero. Baseball, on the other hand, isn't governed by a clock. It's governed by innings. And innings aren't played for 15 minutes. They're played until you make three outs. And so technically, if you keep batting, not making outs, the game goes on forever. Or if it's tied at the end of nine innings, you keep playing more innings. The game could go on uh, theoretically, forever. I once went to a youth game, one of my boys was playing in. It was cold. It's like in April, an evening. I think it even snowed a little bit. But his team batted in one half of one inning for 45 minutes. The other team couldn't make three outs. We were begging, just make an out. Bunt, do something, make an out. 45 minutes. Baseball could go Some of you probably think baseball goes on forever. But there are people today in the world who think that history, time, is more like baseball than it is football, that we just will keep getting more innings, we keep getting more innings, that we'll just keep revolving into the future. But Jesus is saying it's more like football. He's saying it's, there's a clock. Time is linear. It has a beginning and it has an end, and the clock is ticking. He's saying the end is near. Verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, now don't get stuck in that word, we'll talk about it in just a minute, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. He's talking about here the coming destruction, the end of the temple, which is the end of a whole way of life. Sacrificial system, everything, a near-term event, 40 years. And now he shifts gears. He starts talking about not just that, but a distant event. The end of all things. Now we need to see here, Jesus is using a very specific kind of language 
one that uh, scholars call apocalyptic language, highly symbolic language. We see the exact same language used in the book of Revelation. For example, Revelation chapter 6. John writes, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree shed its winter fruit and was shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and every island was removed from its place. Now, we need to understand that apocalyptic language like this is not intended to be understood literally as we understand the word literally. Like if you saw a sports headline one day that said, Bears Mall Packers. Or if you saw a weather headline that said, Chicago buried in snow. You would not immediately assume that they were literal. You wouldn't assume that they were wild beasts devouring flesh or that the Willis Tower was covered by snow. That's not what you would think. You would think this, this is a way of saying something very dramatic and noteworthy has happened. It's the same way with this kind of apocalyptic language. It's symbolic. And taken all together, these images that Jesus is using are simply telling us that something significant and earth-shattering is going to happen. I thought about this week, and the people of Ukraine would understand this kind of language today in a way that we do not. Jesus is saying that this will happen after a time of tribulation, which is a word that just means extreme trial, difficulty or suffering. In the near-term future, he's talking about the destruction of the temple, 70 AD, after a time of persecution of his followers, which happened. He's also pointing to an event in the distant future that will take place also after a time of persecution and suffering. Now, for centuries, scholars have debated the meaning of this term, tribulation. And you've probably heard different explanations of the word tribulation. Some Theologians think it refers to a specific time period of seven years of intense suffering that that will occur just before or just after Jesus makes his second coming. Some think that tribulation refers generally to suffering that the followers of Jesus have known throughout the centuries. I tend to lean a little toward that second understanding of tribulation. That which just happened in the past, first century, that which has happened all the way through Christian history, and that which is happening today, and that which will happen as well in the future. As Paul says, the whole creation groans as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Years ago, I heard a missionary who had spent uh, many years in China tell a story. Uh, He had been (coughs) expelled from China in 1966 at the beginning of what was called the Cultural Revolution of Mao Zedong. And during the Cultural Revolution, which lasted about 10 years, um, upwards of 25 million Chinese people, and many of them Christians, who called themselves Christians, were either imprisoned, were tortured, or were murdered by Mao Zedong in the Cultural Revolution. And when this missionary was finally able to go back into China some 15 years later, he went to the city where he had served and the church where he had pastored and found the remnants of that church. And there was an old woman who had been part of his congregation. And as they talked, she said to him, Pastor, is Jesus coming soon? And he said, yes, I believe he is. Why do you ask? And she said, because we've been through the tribulation. Jesus says the end is coming. second thing we see in this teaching is that Jesus says he's coming soon. Jesus is coming again, and he's coming soon. 
Uh, you may, if you're historians of World War II, you know that in the darkest days of the Pacific Theater uh, in the early 1940s, uh, President Eisenhower ordered General MacArthur, Douglas MacArthur, to leave the Philippine Islands, the island of Corregidor, before the Japanese could kill him or capture him, because he was important. And MacArthur didn't like the order, he didn't agree with it, but he obeyed it and left. But uh, as he left, he promised, I shall return. It's one of the most famous words of World War II. Two and a half years later, he did return, led a series of dramatic victories that turned the tide of the war in the Pacific. Here in verse 26, Jesus says, And then they will see the Son of Man, remember that's how he referred to himself, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Jesus here is saying the day is coming after these things have happened, after tribulation and suffering and false prophets and deception, he will return as king to gather his people. That is, those who have faith in him, to gather his elect. John the Apostle gives us a sneak peek into, into the new heaven and the new earth and what this might look like in Revelation chapter 7. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, the promise of Jesus' return is mentioned dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament. In fact, it's mentioned in 23 of the 27 New Testament books. His coming, the promise is, will mark the fulfillment of his eternal kingdom. Over and over again, we're told that Jesus will return as king to rule and as judge to put an end to all sin and all evil, even to death itself. His coming will mark the, the, the restoration of all things. What's called the new heaven and new earth. Jesus is coming again, he says. And he's saying he's coming soon. Notice verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. Now, he was on the Mount of Olives. It was springtime in Israel. The Mount of Olives was covered with fig trees and with olive trees, and they were beginning to bloom. So he's using an object lesson. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. At the very gates, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now if you're paying attention, you should say, okay, yeah, he's, he says he's going to come again, but hold on a second. This generation will not pass away? This generation? What does Jesus mean here? Now, many scholars believe Jesus is talking about two horizons simultaneously here. That he's talking about the generation that would see the physical destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That was 40 years away, just about the length of one generation. He's also talking about the generation, as in the generation of believers, from that day forward and those who would be alive when his second coming takes place. So, in other words, he's saying that whenever and Wherever his followers are living in history, he's coming soon. He's right at the gate. Therefore, he says, stay awake. And that's the third thing today. Stay awake. When we were kids growing up, my brother uh, Joe um, had trouble, went through a period of time in his life when he had trouble getting up in the morning. He doesn't have that anymore. He wakes up really early, just like I do. 
But for a time, he, he, he would, he would, he would, my parents would wake him up, he'd turn over and go back to sleep, wake him up, turn over and go back to sleep, and make us late for school. And so my dad devised these sort of ingenious ways to wake him up. Once he, he, he uh, soaked a washcloth in cold water and tossed it onto his bare back as he was sleeping. My dad thought that was fun. Uh, another time he picked up my brother's tuba. He played tuba in, this, in like the fifth grade band. And he put the bell of it over his head and blew to wake him up. My dad also thought that was funny. My brother claims uh, it was child abuse and was traumatized him for years. <laughs> Verse 32. But concerning that day or at that hour, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, talk about that in a minute, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is like God's tuba saying, wake up, wake up. Jesus is saying two main things about his coming. First, no one knows when. No one knows when. Throughout history, there have been all kinds of predictions about when Jesus will come again. Let me tick through a couple of them. In the second century A.D., a self-proclaimed prophet named Montanus claimed that the Holy Spirit told him that Christ's return was so near that believers should quit everything, work everything, and prepare for his return. He was wrong. In 999 A.D., the end of the first millennium, Pope Sylvester II declared the last mass of history on New Year's Eve. He was also wrong. In the mid-1840s, a Baptist preacher from Vermont named William Miller predicted Jesus' return on October 22, 1844. Some actually sold their farms or let their fields go unharvested that fall because of his prediction. He was wrong. Since 1914, the Jehovah's Witnesses have predicted seven specific dates for the apocalypse. Every single one of them was wrong. Most recently, you may remember this, a man named Harold Camping put up scores of billboards all over the country, particularly in the South, claiming that Judgment Day was coming on May 21st, 2011. Now, all these, and there are many, many more I could give you, <clears throat> have one thing in common. They were wrong. Jesus says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son but only the Father. So what's the correct answer to the question, when is Jesus coming back? Say it with me. We don't know. We don't know. Now some of you are asking, well, how, how, how does the Son not know? How does Jesus not know? It's a good question, but it's the same way Jesus could bleed, the same reason Jesus could die, this is the mystery and the wonder of the Incarnation, that in becoming flesh, Jesus voluntarily surrendered some aspects of his divinity. Jesus is simply saying, don't waste time and energy trying to figure out what God does not want you to know or to figure out. Instead, he says, stay awake. Stay awake. Now, what does that mean when Jesus says, stay awake? Well, one of the things that crosses my mind, it means we tend to get sleepy. We tend to get drowsy. 
We tend to get caught up in the, in the urgency of everyday life, and we forget the primacy and the urgency of the gospel itself. And I think this is particularly true of us. Those of us who live most of our lives in the relative comfort and wealth of North America. I think our occupational hazards as followers of Jesus in suburban America is that we get a little sleepy at times. Think of it this way, by contrast, if you're a Christian today in the Middle East, if you're a believer today in Ukraine, you're not sleepy. You're wide awake. Jesus is saying, wake up! Pay attention. The world is broken by sin and racked by birth pains. Terrible things happen. Terrible things have always happened. And terrible things will happen. And when they do, remember that I came into the world to give my life that you would have the hope of new life. Remember that I'm coming again as a king to gather all my people. Until then, stay awake. Love God, love your neighbor, preach the gospel, and trust my promise, I am coming soon. Many of you know that my uh, dad pastored churches for nearly 60 years, and my mom served by his side all those years, like 10 different pastorates. Some of you know my mom died um, in November of 2020. My dad's now in a memory care facility in Ohio. And for many years, maybe the last 25 or 30 years of their life, uh, they started every day with a, kind of, with a kind of toast. Every morning. As they sat down for breakfast, they'd pour, always, orange juice in these little tiny glasses. My brother often says he's no, he didn't know you could drink orange juice from any other kind of glasses. They had these little tiny glasses. Pour orange juice in them, and then we'd hold the glasses up. And one or the other of them would say, often at the same time, they'd say, today might be the day. They click their glasses. Today might be the day. Every day, 25 or 30 years. And what they meant was, today might be the day that Jesus comes back. Today might be the day. Or they meant, today might be the day that one or both of us go to meet him. Either way, what they were saying was, their destiny was secure. Their hope was certain. Their marching orders were clear. So stay awake. Stay awake. Let's bow together. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for your promise. We look at the world around us and we see some of the same things your followers saw 2,000 years ago. We see pain and destruction and tribulation. Sometimes we see some of these things in our own lives too. Remind us that none of this takes you by surprise. Remind us that these are just the pains of childbirth, that you're working even now to bring something new out of the brokenness of this world. So teach us to trust your promise. Teach us to stay awake. We pray these things in Jesus' name.